Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about the economy and sustained inflation and what is the playbook for family offices, for very high net worth, ultra high net worth investors who really are trying to you know, maximize returns, but frankly, even survive the current macro environment. I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, Laura Rame is a true expert on all matters, macro, Federal Reserve, interest rates, inflation, et cetera. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. And before we dive into the inflation playbook, um, you're the chief economist at FS Investments. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and about FS Investments? Sure. Um, as you said, I'm the chief U.S. economist here at FS Investments. I've been with the organization for six and a half years now, uh, and we just celebrated our 15-year anniversary. Um, we have uh, $34 billion under management, all in alternative assets. And, um, you know, we really span the range of private credit um, to global allocation uh, through a mutual fund. Um, and we also span the range of liquidity because I think something you quickly learn as you dive into alternatives is that the structure needs to match the actual investment. Um, and, you know, my role here um, is really to help our investment managers and the organization guide our macro outlook. So I think, you know, when I was first interviewed and first hired and I came from a long history of working at the bulge bracket sell side firms up in New York, we're in Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, my question was, how hard do I need to sell what we're trying to sell? You know, that had always been the thing at these large mm -hmm. sell side firms. Like, we're, you know, we're ramping up our EM desk. We want you to sell emerging market debt, you know, <laughs> you always be sure. selling equities, things like this. And their answer was, we just want you to be thoughtful. Like we have confidence that our funds are going to sell themselves. We mm -hmm. really want to raise the brand awareness and the thoughtfulness. So, you know, that was, um, you know, six and a half years ago. And I think it's true to this day. And to me really makes my job so much more fun because, um, you know, there's a really important space in every portfolio for alternatives. And I think that case has really only gotten stronger. And 2022 so far has been a painful example of that. Well, this, you know, as as a unofficial representative of the alternatives industry, I guess, uh, I would say this is our moment to shine. You know, uh, I, I, IPA, uh, one of the major trade organizations representing the alternative space, they always use that phrase portfolio diversifying alternatives. Um, it's kind of a mouthful, that adjective, portfolio <laughs> hyphen diversifying. But uh, it really is like this is why this environment where bonds are down, equities are down, inflation is high. If you invested in alternatives and made that allocation, you know, whether you're an RIA or a family office, if you made that allocation 
five years ago, uh, you're probably feeling pretty good about it right now. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, I think, um, you know, that something striking has happened this year in that correlations have increased amongst markets and especially amongst um, all of these big traditional um, indices. You know, we used to think about diversification as needing to sort of tinker with in the S&P 500. You know, are you looking at <laughs> consumer staples? Are you looking at, you know, tech? And that was your idea of diversification. Um, right. You know, you, you had stocks and bonds were supposed to diversify each other. Well, guess what? This year, their correlation has really skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. um, they're not diversifying each other at all. Um, and this is something that, you know, I don't know what questions you ask me. I hope we'll get into it. But um, I think it's really critical because, you know, one of the things that I have been trying to shout all year is that you need to be tearing apart your portfolio and really re-examining what true diversification looks like because you're not going to get it from the typical sort of stock bond blend that I think so many of us got comfortable with for 25 years when inflation was really low. Inflation changes the dynamics of that diversification. Things stay the same until they don't, right? <laughs> yeah. And we shouldn't feel bad about getting complacent. You know, we had low inflation for 25 years. We're all creatures of habit, you know? Right. Um, right. So that brings me to your research team. And I'm going to bring this up on my monitor here. The, the report that you all published was titled Charted Territory inflation playbook. And I love that charted territory because, you know, you're right. It's not the first time that we've seen higher inflation. Although, you know, there are some changes, there's some demographic changes, there's some other changes. Oh yeah. Um, and by the way, for our listeners and viewers, I'm going to link to this report in our show notes so that everyone can access this report. Um, but I want to start with your team's inflation prediction. Um, I love it when research teams, you know, make an explicit prediction. Um, it's like, tell us what you really think. So sure. we can expect a bit of disinflation now or or deceleration, um, as I think the report refers to it. Um, you know, and I re I recently had Colin Roche on the show, and and he basically said, look, it looks like inflation has already peaked. We're already disinflating, but a lot of these. Um, numbers, you know, the Fed looks at backwards looking data, essentially. Um, but your team expects us to be at that five to 6% inflation range year over year as we end the year. Um, so, so you're expecting basically two and a half, three points of disinflation, even between now, early October and, and January 1st. So, um, you know, I think we're really looking at closer to 6%, but yes, we're from where we are right now. And let me just back up a second, if I may, Andy, mm -hmm. because I think something that's so important to understand is that, you know, when I was a girl in the seventies, I remember the last time we had inflation this high, you yeah. know, I remember, um, 
you know, the oil scarcity, the gasoline scarcity. I had to wait in the back of the car because you could only get gas every other day, depending on the last digit of your license plate. Um, so yeah. Um, you know, so I have this economic memory of when inflation was that high. Um, but I think it's really important to appreciate that it truly skipped a generation. I mean, we've had from the mid nineties until before COVID 25 years of inflation that was very close to 2%. It didn't deviate a lot. You had some, you know, you had an energy price shock around the financial crisis, but it came back really fast. Core inflation really did not deviate significantly from that 2% for any length of time. So it was low inflation, low volatility. And if you think back to the you know, early 1980s, the last time that inflation was as high as it is today, the 10-year treasury was 13% back then. Today, it's, you know, today it's back down to three and a half or, you know, it's been moving a lot. You and I can barely (laughs) keep track of how fast it's moving. But I would argue that even if there are folks like me who have this memory of what the economy was like, investors are in totally uncharted territory when it comes to how to manage portfolios through this higher inflation. So getting back to the, you know, question at hand, the outlook for inflation, um, you know, I, sure, I agree, you know, oil price spike possibility, notwithstanding, we may well have seen the peak year on year number, Mm -hmm. but what we, what we are seeing now is inflation just bubbling up from virtually every sector of our economy. And so while you do have, you know, cases where clearly we're past the worst, like used cars, which is something that we're going to talk about, I'm sure. Um, You know, you have some of these cases where, you know, it was up, you know, 30, 40% at the peak. You know, there was a time where used cars alone, and that's a small piece of the index, was adding over half of the monthly gain in CPI that could well reverse or at least, you know, see some price decline. Sure. But that doesn't change the fact that we're seeing higher food prices, higher rent prices. You just kind of do a round robin of sectors of our economy. And, you know, this is consumer price inflation, right? It's the, it's, it's what is impacting our household budgets every month. You know, I hate to sound like the mom when I talk about this stuff, I do the grocery shopping. You know, we all feel the pain of, higher food prices. Um, And so, you know, you kind of do that 360 of every sector of our economy and you are seeing pervasively higher inflation than we had prior to COVID. So so Laura, it sounds to me like some of the like real outliers, let's put energy aside for a moment, but like some of the extreme outliers like used cars, they've maybe already rolled over. You know, we've seen the worst, but like the the corpus, the meat of this higher inflation is still here to stay. So it's like when you cut away those kind of outliers, the used cars, the computer chips, whatever, what have you, that maybe the stimulus checks, you know, some of these one-time events or whatever, it still is, is, as you predicted, closer to 6%. That's still pretty high as kind of a default rate. It's high and it's far from the Fed's 2% target. You know, this is... You know, as inflation rose, 
we all saw the Fed mistakenly now, we know in retrospect, describe, mm. really point to these one-off factors and point to them as transitory. I think watching their language on the way down will be critical because we're probably going to get choppiness in the monthly numbers related to some big swings in some of these, you know, durable goods or some of these one-off sectors. But now, given that we're just seeing this broader-based increase in, you know, rents, which is, you know, the Fed likes to differentiate between sticky prices and um, things that fluctuate quickly. And rent is sticky. <laughs> you know, medical care costs are sticky. Sure. There are things that um, that really make employees go to their bosses and ask for higher wages if their rent has gone up 10%. So that's um, the wage, the wage price spiral. Was that what I remember from my college that, textbook? That is exactly, that is the worst case scenario. That's what the Fed is just so eager to avoid. And, you know, wages and we're not are, there. Are we there already? Well, or are we you know, there? this is the, this is the tricky part. Wages are higher. Wages are also sticky, you know, so they, yeah. they don't, they take time to move. Um, no matter how hard I've been trying, but, <laughs> but um, they, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, we've seen wages up 5% year on year. That's versus 3% before COVID, but it's far less than inflation. So I think, you know, if we settle at the end of the year, sort of Q1 around 5%, 5%, the big question we are all going to be asking ourselves is, is that inflation low enough? for the Fed to sort of spike the ball and declare victory? Or are they still going to keep rates high and be hawkish? Um, because if they are solely going by their 2% target, 5%, it's better than 9%, but it's really to them, I think, still an unacceptable rate of inflation. I, I personally, and I don't really know anything, but I don't see it. I don't see them... Uh, I, I think it's it's a question of what are they more afraid of? Are they afraid of inflation in the fives or are they afraid of a recession? I think they're afraid of inflation sticking in the fives. I mean, I think we're already in the recession, right? Um, the thing is, recessions, my point of view, I don't know if the Fed agrees with me, they don't have to be that big of a deal, right? Like they're not all 2008, 2009 type recessions. I mean, Think back to 2020, like the little flash, you know, economic slowdown we had that lasted all of what 60 days or something. So they don't have to be that big of a deal, but a, a, like a permanent or you know indefinitely higher sticky rate of inflation at five percent, that's a huge deal. And I think even if their target is two percent, that might be their stated target. You know, maybe they're thinking, well, if we can even get it in the threes, if we can even get it to three point seven five everyone is going to like take a deep breath and say like okay ah we're in striking distance of of normal i personally i think that's where they probably feel like they can relax a little bit what do you think yeah um boy this and this is something that i've just have been thinking about nonstop um i agree with several things you said i mean i i've been reminding people that the last two recessions were particularly um, crazy. You know, we had the, we had the financial, we had the great recession accompanied by a financial crisis that is not normal. Um, and it just lasted for so long, six, seven quarters. 
And then, you know, just the amount, the epic dislocation that we had in jobs and activity, it was short lived, but you know, it was a, a zombie apocalypse, you know, it was really the right. pandemic was really scary, you know, and it, and yep. it resolved, but boy, you know, it was really disruptive, but we've had recessions in the early nineties and the 2000, you know, early 2000s that didn't take years to recover the lost income and jobs and output. Um, they were really sort of shorter term events that um, we were able to recover through rather quickly. And I think, um, so, you know, the, the label recession has just been really tricky this time around because, you know, we're getting these really conflicting signals. Growth is arguably extremely weak, but unemployment growth is still really strong. Um, that's, but that's backward looking, <laughs> you know, as we go into sure. next year, I think there are folks like me who are actually worried that we really haven't seen a recession yet. We've just seen really sluggish growth and mm. that could be waiting for us in 2023, along with the more typical collateral damage of some job losses. Um, but- Well, do, I mean, is there an argument that we need a recession? I mean, asset prices, some of them at least, just got out of control. I mean, you shouldn't have, at, you know, housing prices shouldn't increase 20% year over year. That's not healthy. That's not- sustainable. So a little bit of a give back um, might be a good thing, right? Yes. I think that the Fed, and we all know this, right? They've painted themselves into a really tough picture. Um, they've painted themselves into a tough spot over the last two years. Mm -hmm. And this happened, and this circles back to something else you mentioned, which is so critical, which is the fact that what do they care more about, the recession or higher inflation? I think this is, and this maybe this is off consensus. I think they are facing an existential threat to their own credibility. I think they are now so worried because they dropped the ball so badly on this inflation front that they are just going to, they are going to have, they are having to claw back their credibility. Um, Bingo. and that comes at a price. Um, well, and, and, you know, Colin Roche, who I had on, he, he basically said, it's amazing they know they're making a quote unquote mistake, right? And they're willing to make it. And I said, to me, that actually makes sense. They're willing to make a quote unquote mistake, but they're just, they're not willing to, to, to repeat the mistake that they just made, which was underestimating inflation. They're like, we're okay with pretty much any other bad outcome, except for that one, except for us saying out loud, we're taking on inflation. And then three years later, we have totally failed. We have egg on our face. That's like the one thing I think they will do anything to avoid. And, and honestly, I think rightfully so, because again, a recession, of course, there's dislocation, there's businesses that go under, but in the larger scheme of things, it's not really that harmful to an economy, but sustained inflation over like, let's say a decade could be very harmful. Yeah. And I think they also are looking back at the 70s. They're seeing when they cut rates too early back then and inflation resurged. So I think, you know, exactly to your point. Um, and they probably made a mistake with quantitative easing as well. They kept it going for too long. Um, they took, you know, they clawed it back fast. Um, but the reality is, you know, through the last 15 years and the 2018 tightening cycle, the Fed is now having to push back hard 
against market expectations that they're just going to be cutting rates next year. <laughs> the reality is with inflation at 5%, which is my outlook for sort of deeper into 2023, that it persists, uh -huh. um, you know, that's not a place where they can start comfortably really cutting rates significantly. And so this, you know, we all talk about the Powell put, right? That's it. That's what they're pushing back against. This idea that they're going to be there to rescue markets. Well, you know, the interesting thing is there are things that are outside of their control, right? So I, I agree that they, you know, made mistakes in 2020. I mean, that, that's obvious, but it wasn't their decision uh, necessarily to like sh shut down the supply chain. It wasn't, it was a political decision, you know, all these stimulus payments and extended unemployment payments, essentially uh, what we did politically to inject a ton of cash into the system on the consumer side, you know, creating all that additional demand at the same time that we're constraining supply. So another concern that I have is even as the Fed is being more aggressive and signaling that they're going to be more aggressive, you know, we've also had recent legislation, the the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, or recent executive orders like the the student loan forgiveness. And these are things that are outside of their control that are injecting, I, I guess I'd call it more demand into the economy, you know, more more dollars sort of sloshing around. Is is that a concern? So, you know, I and I I think that I think what you're pointing out is critical because when we think about the way that rate hikes are going to slow the economy, the reality is there are a lot of things adding to inflation that rate hikes aren't going to address, you know, like sure. so this is something that I think you know, when you look at where inflation's coming from, some of it, it are things that um, that Fed rate hikes will control and other things um, are just beyond the scope. Russia invading Ukraine pushed up wheat prices, pushed up commodity prices, a whole commodity complex. That's not something that their rate hikes are necessarily going to be able to fix tomorrow. So, um, you know, against this backdrop, um, I agree that, you know, as the the Fed rate hikes are a broadsword, right? They're not a scalpel. Um, so that that I that I think is true. Um, but when you look at, I think some of these targeted fiscal stimulus um, efforts, I do think you know I, I've long said this. I don't have a problem with the government spending money. I just think we need to ta be tactical about what we spend it on. And so I think if this was branded as the Inflation Reduction Act because obviously inflation's the buzzword that everyone's pushing back against. I think there it does make a lot of sense for us to subsidize domestically driven business investment and you know again deglobalization is not just something that we are pursuing it's also happening to us at the same time. Again after you know 30 years of moving towards global supply chains really I mean, in retrospect, the U.S. economy was a monument to global supply chain efficiency. Right. And we realized how fragile that was. So as we walk that back, you know, it's not entirely a bad thing. Well, I, 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 I so I agree there, like uh, yeah. in terms of national security, even like it, or in terms of certain types of blue collar manufacturing job, like there's all these sorts of good things about um <laughs> about the reversal of the trend of, of globalization. I mean, there were some good things about globalization, but there were some not so good things about it, right? But but by reversing that trend of globalization, 
isn't that just creating this inflationary pressure that's just going to kind of stick around? Yes, that is exactly right. And that is something that I think is underappreciated. When we look back at the 30, you know, I, I, I know, I know this sounds like we should be talking about what's happening right now, but we are, even though we're talking <laughs> about it in terms of decade long trends, Sure. when we look at, you know, the, the multi-decade trend of globalization, one of the reasons why our economy was able to manage through, to manage very low inflation was because we had this canopy of durable goods price deflation, right? Remember disinflation is when inflation is still positive, but it's falling. It's like a deceleration. Deflation is when prices are contracting. So if you look at the price of cars, the price of computers, the price of all of our, a lot of our non-durable goods and all of our durable goods, they have been falling um, for 20 some years. Even that, food, right? I mean, a uh, loaf of bread, Coca-Cola. Almost zero. Yeah, yeah, it was almost zero. Um, and um, so, you know, I think this is something that's underappreciated, a world where that's less, even less global, where it's still going to be a global community, it's still going to be a global economy. But even if we just bring some of, walk back some of that deglobalization, even if we walk back some of that globalization, mm-hmm. we end up in a, in a net-net higher inflation world. And that is a reason why, you know, I wrote this playbook because- I think that investors, I'm going to kind of end right back where I started, but I think investors need to appreciate that this isn't a flash in the pan of higher inflation, and it's not going to come back together again in a neat 2% bundle um, like we had for so many years. It is going to, you know, the genie's really out of the bottle. It's going to be really tough to get it all back together again. And geopolitics is a part of that. U.S. policy is a part of that. And these big globalization trends are a part of that. And and so do you see that as, you know, that meaning everything we just described, that those macro decade-long trends, tail tailwinds that are pushing inflation up, is that what's going to cause the sticky inflation? Or is that more of is that more a an artifact of like consumer expectations or employee expectations? Is that what the sticky inflation is? Or am I No, I think, I think it's the former because, you know, again, another trend, and this is highly ironic. We talked about housing earlier, Andy, and this is something that, um, I think people don't appreciate, you know, the millennials are sort of the sleeping giants, you know, Mm -hmm. demographics, they're the tectonic plates of what I do, (laughs) these slow moving trends, but they're really unavoidable. And the millennials, you know, were delayed in trying to buy homes and now, um, you know, they really came in. So part, obviously the pandemic played a part, low interest rates and this big demographic push mm-hmm. of people who delayed wanting to buy a home raced into the market. And we underbuilt homes um, because of the financial crisis and its basis in the real estate market. Sure. So this has all come to a head. And ironically, the Fed's rate hikes have crushed the home builder um, market. Mm -hmm. So they're hitting supply at exactly the wrong time. And it's actually amplifying this demand for houses. So, you know, if you own a home, it's a good thing, but (laughs) (laughs) can I, can I pause that? So just stick a pin right there, that comment that you made that it's exactly the wrong time because 
feel like the mortgage rates have obviously gone up. We're seeing inventories rise in some markets. And I talk to real estate investors all the time. Like that's what we do at, at AltsDB. Um, and it's weird because nobody's really panicking. Like it kind of feels like, wait, kind of, it's like there's that voice in the back of your head. Like, wait, aren't I supposed to be panicking right now? But I, I think there's just like this sense, uh, a lot of sponsors, a lot of family offices that they see the exactly what you're seeing, which is like, look, there's, there's nowhere to hide. There's no 5 million houses that are hiding right now that are going to appear next year. And so if inflation really is sticking at five or 6%, so what if, if the housing market, let's say, takes a 10% haircut in the next year or what, like it's got nowhere else to go, but back up because there's just not enough homes to go around. That, that is, I think that is exactly right. And I would really echo that because, and obviously real estate is so locality driven. You know, we've seen some markets experience explosive growth in other markets like Philly um, have not seen <laughs> the significant price appreciation sure. a little bit, but we've lagged, you know, South Beach or Miami. So, right. um, but, um, but this is really critical because Unlike the financial crisis where we had way overbuilt, both on the commercial real estate side and the residential side, we have not done that um, over the last 15 years. And um, and so it's one of the reasons why, and I will I'll layer onto that. And this is where I'm interested in your opinion on this, you know, this back to work, um, you know, or work versus work from home. I think we're seeing, you know, even as we feel like our economy has gotten back on footing, the mm -hmm. reality is office occupancy is 47% what it was before COVID. That is extraordinary. Wow. And think about people, you know, spending, you know, my colleague, Andrew Coors, who's written a lot about real estate, estimated that people are spending 21 uh, percent more time at home than they were before the pandemic. Well, that means that you're going to value your home more. <laughs> you're spending more time there. And so, um, you know, we were just talking today, I think, you know, as real, as you know, the, the, how the construction numbers have fallen, but the home improvement numbers are really rising. You know, this is a place where I think, you know, the investment pivots, um, because mortgage rates are so high, people are going to still be trying to improve the homes that they're in now. I think that's the next wave that we're going to get just because uh, arguably given how fast mortgage rates have moved, it takes time for that to work its way through into the top line pricing. What you tend to get is number of transactions freezing up first. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think real estate is still going to be a really important part of real asset investing in the next year. Yeah. And so let's talk about those fundamentals. First of all, I, I totally agree. This is, this was a, a secular permanent shift. You know, it doesn't mean office offices aren't going to exist anymore, but that 47% or 48%, whatever the exact number, that's not going to go back up anywhere near to what it was. Um, but we saw home prices rise so quickly. And of course we also saw rent, rent, rent went way up, but it did not gain on a percentage basis nearly as much as the asset prices did. So from where I sit, at, not a mathematician, not an analyst, but it seems like there's almost a margin of error 
if you are an investor in real estate, if you're owning for cash flow, if you know, if it, you know, talking about multifamily assets, those types of assets where asset prices could even fall by 10%, that doesn't mean that rent is going to be flat. It's not going to fall 10%, but I don't even no. think it's going to, it's not going to be flat, right? It's, those aren't, those didn't move together necessarily in the last 24 months. So I don't know that they need to move. And so if mortgage rates are in the fives and the sixes, whatever, if inflation is in the sixes, I mean, it, you know, just in the abstract, this doesn't, doesn't feel like a bad deal for me, you know? Right. I, I think that's really important. Um, you know, the, the we're supply constrained mm -hmm. um, and this is an important dynamic of inflation. Just because prices stop rising doesn't mean they're going to fall back to where they were again. Right. I would argue that for rents. Um, you know, we saw a very unique episode of rents in New York City, for example, falling during the pandemic, but we don't expect that now. Um, you know, there's evidence that rents have stopped rising, but, you know, we don't, I don't, you know, again, I'm talking about residential rents, mm -hmm. office rents, you know, again, maybe different and it's very locality driven. Um, but when you look at those multifamily, you know, the construction numbers for multifamily continue to look good. There continues to be demand. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that's again, a place where we've had, um, construction really lag for years and years and years. So, yeah, I, I think the math still ends up, especially at a time when interest rate, you know, safer credit interest rates are negative you know, real rates. Well, that's exactly it. That's just, it's, it's negative yeah. interest rate on a real basis. Exactly. And, you know, and inflation really kind of eats the stock market first, um, selectively. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. but that is, you know, real assets are the target that need to be more heavily revisited in this environment because equities, um, especially, you know, look at where the S&P 500s weighted. It is all, it is a massive overweight towards these international, large cap, multinational tech companies. Well, guess what? Strong dollar hurts those guys. Mm -hmm. Higher interest rates hurts those guys. And, um, and then the inflation on top of it. It's just kind of a perfect storm. And that's why you've seen those, you know, that top line grouping just get hammered so far this year. And I don't see that changing in 2023. Those, all these dynamics are going to continue to be in play. Well, that's interesting. That, that brings me to another topic, which is portfolio construction. And so, you know, we're talking in the context of high net worth investors, family offices, maybe even institutional investors, we're all navigating the same environment. And, and I think that's really top of mind in the alternative space where everyone's taking a look at that 60-40 portfolio, even those of us who have moved past it, it's still kind of that reference point. Um, and looking at that the bond portion of a portfolio, um, I, I mean, real yields on bonds are negative, right? I haven't looked at junk bonds lately, but I assume even they're yielding negatively, especially on an after-tax basis. Um, how long can that last where yeah. this entire section of a market just has a, a very negative yield? 
Yeah. So, you know, junk bonds are, are positive yielding. Um, okay. you know, again, depends on where you are along the spectrum, high yields, 10%. And pre, that's pre-tax, yeah, inflation's right? 8% with pre-tax. Yes. Yes. Yep. yep. That's right. Um, but you know, investment grade treasuries, deeply negative yields. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when we think about portfolios construction, we really do think about trying to find those uncorrelated assets. Um, when we talk about commercial real estate, we're looking at it from the debt side because we don't want to remark our net asset value. <laughs> we want it to be sta- <laughs> we want it to be stable. Sure. Um, we're looking at energy, um, which which you know oil sold off, but I see upside from here especially going into winter. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just oil, right? It's the entire energy complex. It's the fact that, you know, the, the shift from traditional energy to electric vehicles, you know, over the next five years is just a place where energy is going to continue. I think to be something that, you know, is subsidized. We're going to continue to get Mm -hmm. um, demand for it. And um, I think it's an important place to, you know, for that real asset investing for uh, materials. What one of the things that we're seeing, and this is where inflation's a game changer. Business investment has been remarkably resilient, um, and you know, again, it's not necessarily a bad thing going forward for our economy. It'd be great to get. We've you know we've underinvested in our econ in our businesses have underinvested for years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be an important positive. And materials companies have done well. The companies that are that have the inputs for what you need for that capex spending have done well. So these are places, you know, there are pockets of um, the equity market that we're accessing. But you know, when we really look at portfolios, it's it's realizing that you need to. And I agree, we still kind of benchmark to the 60 40. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the cocktail party discussion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but because it's what we're kind of, kind of look at our phones every day, these, yep. you know, our private investments aren't listed on our iPhones the same way that our, you know, that our stocks right. are and the S&P 500 is. Um, so that's kind of ends up being what what's still top of mind day by day. Well, but, let, let me let me actually yeah. ask you to put you on the spot with, with FS investments. I mean, I know you all have a lot of products interval funds, uh, BDCs, all all kinds of different alternatives products. Um, But I've always felt you have the 60-40 portfolio, and then we have these alternatives with varying degrees of liquidity, right? Some of them more liquid, some of them less liquid. And some of the ones that are less liquid, in my mind, they're probably just as volatile as those more liquid markets as the equities market and the debt. It's just they don't get repriced every day in real time. Um, but then there are other types of alternatives that you know truly do zig when the market zags or just a lot more resilient where a year like this, they'll turn in a four, 4% positive return or 6% positive return. So how do you see you know, the, the alternatives lands, landscape? Is, are, are alternatives on the whole, are they broadly you know, delivering what they've advertised to RIAs, to high net worth investors as that, you know, sort of ballast in a portfolio during a year like this? I, I think they have, um, you know, it's a, such a broad category to, um, to try to summarize, Mm -hmm. but I think that 
we've, you know, if you look at what few assets are up, you know, look at leverage loans, they're down 2% um, versus, you know, the traditional indices. Right. Um, you look at, um, you know, I mean, you, you can really pick apart um, so many different um, asset classes and even within that find winners and losers. Mm -hmm. But I think that if 2022 has done anything, it's really proven that we need these non-correlated assets in our portfolio. And we really need to, you know, I just think we need to rethink how we consider diversification. And again, you know, I think for so many years, it was like large cap or small cap. Well, they're all moving together, you know? (laughs) know? So, um, so we really need to just that, that is what I think of when I think of reconsidering um, diversification. And I think it is important your point about structure and liquidity. Um, and, and I'm happy that your audience is really filled with people who probably are taking a longer view on things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like I'm smarter than the average bear when it comes to finance, and I'm smart enough to know that I cannot time the market. And Bingo. I, I, I have always discouraged anybody from thinking that they are that smart. Maybe you get lucky sometimes, but um, but the smartest investors really know where they're not smart. <laughs> and so you want to, I think, um, you know, be leaning in, even if you're leaning into the macro story, timing that is really difficult. Managing through this volatility has been terrible. Um, you know, the August rally, we're rallying today, tomorrow, mm-hmm. but at last week it was doom and gloom. I mean, it's just been really, really volatile. So um, I almost... and, and I I can't make I can never make sense of that, <laughs> which is the logic. At maybe you it's can all gotten noisier. <laughs> well, is the logic that when the the mar- the the news is bad, then we think the Fed won't really yeah. go as far as we think. So then we think they'll they'll be nicer. You know, is that the logic that bad news that's, is good? Like that's exactly the logic. And I would layer on to that the fact that. The you know interest rates have come down. Um, again, this is a place where just stocks and bonds are not diversifying each other. They are highly correlated with each other. Wow. So yeah. when your bonds are rallying, your stocks are rallying, and guess what? When stocks sell off, it's often because bonds have sold off and the yields are higher. So that is what we have seen all year, and it is striking. And I think. This is something that, you know, is being amplified by poor liquidity in the treasury market. Um, we could do another podcast solely on that topic. Um, you know, this is something that is really causing volatility around markets. But, you know, that it's one reason why, you know, I think the smarter folks like in the family offices, like the REAs, they are taking a longer term view. You know, we're making wine that takes five to seven years from the time you plant it to the time when you're harvesting or even longer. Um, You know, you can't have a short term view. And so I think they've known the importance of alternatives. We we at FS try to take that to every we really try to democratize it to every investor because a lot of people just think that they can do it themselves, you know, with their account and their S&P 500. Um, And the reality is that, you know, you should be accessing some of these structures and they may be a liquid, but that's where you can truly get outsized returns in a very difficult market. 
plus, yeah, plus the diversification. And so that brings yeah. me back to this report. Um, and it references the winners in this type of period where we have these sustained periods of higher inflation. And so in, in the report, top three performers, number one, real estate, number two, commodities, number three, infrastructure. Do you think that's going to be the case over the next couple of years? Absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, the job losses are what make the headlines. What doesn't make the headlines is, you know, companies spending hundreds of millions of dollars building new plants, um, you know, uh, companies, um, but, you know, going in and building new headquarters. Um, you know, these are things that I think we're going to continue to see the demographic trends strongly point to the need for more housing, um, for more commercial real estate. You know, it's again, you know, you, you have to be selective, right? But I think everyone got really nervous when Amazon said they kind of overinvested in industrial. Mm -hmm. If anything, the last 10 years has shown us it's that internet shopping is going to continue and sort of this, you know, inventories, it's not a surprise to me that inventories ended up higher than they did before COVID look at the inventory drawdown and the difficulty that companies had maintaining sales when the supply chain got disrupted. Of course, inventories were going to end. Uh, we're going to kind of find a steady state at a higher level. And I don't think that's a mistake. I actually think some of it's by design and they're going to need the place to store that stuff. So, um, so you're not, you're not seeing the panic setting in, no. in the corporate world with the rising inventories. Uh, uh, no. And I think, you know, obviously there are too many fire pits, stored. <laughs> you know, so everyone, nobody needs two fire pits, you know, everyone right. bought one and now they have one. But, yeah. um, but beyond that, um, you know, I, I think that we've worked really hard to overcome these supply chain disruptions. And to me, um, sort of coming to rest at a place where inventories remain higher than they were before COVID makes a ton of sense. So this is, you know, for this reason, um, you know, I stand by where we think our winners are going to continue to be in this higher inflation environment. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, this is something that I think we're naturally underinvested in. That happened because we had low inflation for so long. And um, it's not something that's just going to be fixed over the next several months. And therefore, you need to be building a portfolio around the idea that we're probably going to have persistently higher inflation. Words of wisdom to live by. Laura, I, um, I, I love this conversation we had today. Uh, I hope we can have you back on the show. Honestly, I've, I feel like we should probably have you on like every month or something because <laughs> the, the news is just, honestly, there's so much. It's hard to even it's true. keep up with it. Um, but that being said, where can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about FS investments as well as your research? Well, um, I'm on Twitter, economist Rame, economist underscore Rame. Um, and our website, fsinvestments.com has all of our content. Uh, anybody can go in, download it. It's all for public consumption um, and sign up for our mailing list. You can sign up for my stuff specifically, our entire team, uh, looking at credit, real asset, cross correlation, cross asset allocation, um, and our playbooks, of course, uh, we've written on globalization. What happens when your portfolio is all highly correlated playbook? <laughs> I'm working on a strong dollar playbook right now. So, uh, I think it's a really good way to dip your toe into our content. Yeah. I, I have to personally compliment the FS investments team. I love these playbooks and I just, I love that, um, 
your research team and you all have the confidence, you know, to make these calls, to publish them publicly for everyone. So I really recommend these reports. And for our listeners, I'm going to make sure to link to them as well as to the FS investment stuff and to all of Laura's uh, social media. So you can follow along and get some of that valuable research. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our show on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform so that you can be sure to receive our new episodes as we publish them. Laura, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 